You may remember what the last day of school felt like, especially the last day after a really, really grueling week of finals. You feel like you've been locked inside forever and fresh air, freedom, a full night of sleep are just so close. You can taste it. Members, I just wanna be done as much as you do as well, but let's, let's keep chugging along, please. That's exactly what it felt like inside the state capitol in those final days. All right, members, you've heard the motion uh, or the request for permission for a third reading amendment. Please open the machine and members, please vote. You guys don't care what it's about. That's cool. Not on the <laughs> As lawmakers approached their deadline, there was some downtime. It was a chance for people to catch up, take pictures, say goodbye. There was even a short harp concert, thanks to one member of the press corps. And some state senators also put on some musical performances of a less graceful variety. As things wrapped up, there were plenty of tributes and farewell speeches for term-limited lawmakers, some of which kind of ended up sounding more like a roast. Thank you. I think this is one of the finest funerals I've ever been to. You know, uh, at funerals, uh, they always say, say all these nice things about people and you're sitting there like, who in the hell are they talking about? But thank you so much for the kind words. I truly appreciate it. Do any of you want to get really nervous, Halloween story? Think of what I could have done here if I'd ever been in the majority. Elections have consequences. For some lawmakers, the end of this session marks an uncertain political future. Looming elections and new political lines put their prospects for office in doubt. I know myself, I got a tough race to do. Don't know if I'll be back. I, I do leave that up to the Lord. A lot of lawmakers said leaving the legislature was bittersweet and they reflected on the close bonds and friendships they'll miss. Mr. Speaker, it's truly been an honor to serve with you. Honor to serve with you too, Majority Leader Eskar. I moved the house, and he died. Take your time. We have 24 minutes. <laughs> I moved the house, adjourned, sunny day. But behind the scenes of all these happy graduation type feelings, there was, of course, politics, and including some hardball politics. The final days of session showed how fast-paced and pretty much improvised negotiations between the different parties and members of the different parties can lead to decisions and laws that are going to be with us for many years to come. This is Purplish from CPR News, a show about Colorado politics and policy. I'm Benta Berkland. And I'm Andrew Kenny. We're recording this on the morning of May 12th after a uh, really long last few days of legislative session. We haven't had much sleep. We don't have much of a script. And yet there is so much to cover. And to help us cover all this ground, we've got a third voice on the show today, our editor, Megan Verlee. Thank you for finally turning on my mic, guys. Since you were the experts on everything that lawmakers just did with their 120-day session, I figured I would just kind of come in and MC and maybe even referee your way through it. Hopefully not referee, but... <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, how about, yeah, MC, MC Megan. We can, we can deal with MC Verlee. 
Our goal here is to catch you up on some of the big issues you've heard us talk about this session, from fentanyl to behavioral health and public sector organizing. And given that we're tired, frankly, we'll also try to be entertaining without getting too ridiculous, but no promises. Let's start with almost the very last thing that lawmakers did late Wednesday night, which was to pass the fentanyl bill that I know you guys have paid a lot of attention to this session. Uh, It's kind of amazing that this one came down to the wire, given that Governor Polis was talking about it in his state of the state way back in January. There are times when the swift arm of justice is the best solution, which is why I look forward to working with you on legislation to strengthen penalty for drug dealers peddling fentanyl in our communities because Coloradans are sick and tired of our loved ones dying from fentanyl. This was a topic where Republicans, Democrats, the governor, the legislature agreed that action needed to be taken in response to rising overdose deaths and the emergence of this frightening new drug. But it's a very complex subject area. I crossed a lot of territory. There's a lot to work out. And so it went to the very end of session. And actually, it kind of came down to just pretty much one word. Now, I know what that word is, but for the sake of suspense, what was that word? (laughs) The word was knowingly. But to explain why that word mattered, let me give you a little context. Because the scariest thing about fentanyl is that it's really potent lethal almost in really small doses and distributors are mixing it into other drugs, whether it's cocaine, heroin, other substances, fake uh, prescription pills. So there's a high chance that someone using any of those drugs might accidentally possess fentanyl and not know it. So it came down to this argument of if someone bought this drug that you're trying to punish with felonies by accident, should they still be punished with a felony? One thing that I thought was really interesting that you highlighted uh, in covering this is that you have people on one side saying, look, trust the prosecutors and the DAs. Uh, They're not going to take this new felony power and Mm -hmm. go after people who thought they bought Coke, but actually does fentanyl in it. And really, maybe Mm -hmm. they just need treatment. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, you have have justice reformers who've been a pretty powerful group at the Capitol for, for quite a while saying... No reason history tells us don't trust the cops and the prosecutors. They really just want to go back to the war on drugs. Uh, This is going to get misused. And so it's Uh it's this interesting kind of trust us. We don't trust you tension that that kept this issue so uh, potent. I I think that's why it was such a tricky issue at the legislature, because there was intra-party struggles among Republicans and Democrats who hold the majority. And a lot of Democrats feel like they don't want the state to go back to being more punitive. They don't want to punish someone who has an addiction and that that's not the best way to solve any of this. Exactly. And that issue that you two just outlined, I mean, that was the issue with the entire bill was do we trust prosecutors and police with more power to punish people and trust that they won't unnecessarily harm people who are just addicted to a drug. But then it became a mini issue within the issue when it came to this question of whether to also punish people who didn't knowingly possess the drug without getting too far into the details of it. That was the final fight over the final hours. And they came up with a kind of a convoluted compromise that I'm not going to explain here, but will maybe let some people try to get a lesser punishment if they accidentally had fentanyl. 
So I'm curious. I was watching all this at home because that's what editors do. And I was sitting there thinking, okay, everybody knows this is a must-pass bill. Of course they're going to pass this Mm -hmm. bill. Not that this is theatrics. They are really legitimately arguing over one last piece of policy. But from where I was sitting, I thought this cannot be in doubt piece of it, you know, this bill that also has lots more penalties for dealers, that has money for treatment, that has harm reduction funding. So in the building on Wednesday, did it feel like this bill was in jeopardy or was this kind of like we're all going to try to get the as much as we can, but we all know we're going to have somebody's going to give in in the end? And I know Andy's going to weigh in on this here and he was covering it very closely. But from my perspective, I didn't see this passage of this bill as something that was in doubt. Um, because it was such a top priority for the governor, for Democrats who are in the majority. We don't have good crime statistics in Colorado. People are up for re-election, and then also people genuinely want to solve the problem. So I, I would have been shocked if it failed. Even some of the lawmakers who voted against this said it wasn't because they're okay with the status quo. But Andy, I don't know if your perspective is, is different. Well, it's impossible to say for sure, but what we know is that This whole idea, I mean, this is the first time in years the state has instituted tougher criminal penalties for drugs. And it's really upsetting to liberal Democrats. And the fact that they were being pushed one more step further and and losing this knowingly provision that they had won, this was insult to injury or injury to injury. This was one more loss, and they were upset about it. You know, Senator Brittany Pedersen, uh, one of the sponsors, said that she doubted herself at some points whether they'd get the bill done that day. Things are not always completely rational on the last day. People were upset with where the bill had ended up and didn't want to lose one more fight in something that they already considered a big loss for their criminal justice priorities. Well, as we all know, because we were up very late watching it happen, that bill did pass. It was, I think, like the second to last bill approved of the session with a little bit over an hour to go before that midnight deadline where they had to adjourn. And in talking about this, we've really gotten a chance to introduce the four factions that I think are going to come up again and again as we look back over the session. You've got Governor Polis and his influence on on lawmakers and policy. You've got the Republicans in the minority using whatever power they can find to have an influence on things. And then you have these big Democratic caucuses in the House and Senate that are really divided between more progressive members trying to push the party to the left and more moderate members who often line up with Governor Polis trying to keep it more towards the center. Okay, so to continue with our theme of big priorities that only passed at the very end of session, Benta, let's talk election security. Yes, this is a bill we've covered frequently, and its passage was not in doubt. This was a top priority for Democrats and for the County Clerks Association. So those are the people who run elections across the state. Most of them are Republicans, and they were strong, strong advocates for this bill. And what it does is it tries to prevent insider election security threats. And so this was the bill that was in response to the security breach that happened in Mesa County. Republican clerk and recorder Tina Peters is facing state charges related to election tampering, identity theft, misconduct. And she was doing all of this, allegedly, in search of voter fraud in the 2020 election. And not to be too flip about it, but I always sort of thought of this bill as you were uh, covering it as the everything Tina Peters is alleged to do is now very, very illegal bill, because a lot of her charges aren't 
really specific to the things that she's alleged to have done, like copying the hard drives, because Colorado law isn't super specific about that. It's more the things she did around that, like identity theft and attempting to influence a public official by bringing in this unauthorized person under somebody else's name. So this really kind of it's almost like they looked at the arrest warrant and said, OK, well, it's now illegal to copy your your hard drive without authority. It's uh, we're going to make you leave the cameras on because she allegedly turned the cameras off. Mm-hmm. All that stuff. I think that's right. I mean, I would note that there's still a federal investigation, so there will potentially be more charges. But, yes, this bill does things like barring counties from copying voting machine hard drives. And even though cameras had to be on the voting equipment during certain times of the year, this bill expands that. So it's 24-7. Only certain people can even be in the room with the voting machines. It requires key card access. It increases the penalties for security breaches. And it adds more training requirements for county clerks and certain election staff. Now, Benta, you said that the passage of it wasn't in doubt, but that doesn't necessarily mean it went down easily, did it? There was some vociferous objections till the end. Yeah, that's exactly right. As we all know, this is such a highly polarized issue. And when you talk about Democrats, you know, this is a huge priority for them. Republicans outside of the Capitol, those running elections supported this. But inside the Capitol, it was extremely partisan. Only one Republican backed it. The state party rallied against it. I think a big part of that was because the bill also gives more authority to the secretary of state, who's a Democrat, to enforce election rules. So they saw it as this power grab. They saw it as, hey, this isn't necessary because Peters is already facing charges. I, I do think that is super interesting. You mentioned the secretary of state. Not only is she a Democrat, but Republicans would argue she has been very partisan in her office. You heard from even fairly moderate Republicans that, hey, we just can't back a bill that is going to give Jenna Griswold more power and that feels like it is very targeted against a Republican official. I listened to some of the last debate on it, and I thought it was an interesting mix of people kind of making the, like, this isn't necessary, our election system is fine argument. But you did also have members of the Republican House caucus in particular using this, trying to amend this bill to add on things that have kind of come out of election conspiracy world. So things about voter rolls, things about mail ballots that were the exact opposite of what Democrats in a way were trying to do with this bill. It, you know, if anybody wants to go back and listen to the tape of that late, late, late night debate, it was down the rabbit hole into election conspiracy land at, at times. And, you know, those kinds of objections, like we're always going to get overruled by Democrats. Democrats were always going to pass it. But as you get later in the session, that time becomes more and more crucial. So Democrats get more and more nervous as they sit and hear hour two or hour three of election conspiracy theories. Well, Andy, to your point, as time was running out at the end of the session, Republicans were using delay tactics, which that's what the minority party does. That's where they have some leverage. And Republicans Mm -hmm. were able to get some concessions on this bill. So even though Republicans, for the most part, didn't back the bill, they were able to get Democrats to remove a requirement that would have required training on how to combat disinformation and misinformation. So that was training for clerks. Mm. And then early on in this legislation, legislative process, Democrats stripped a very controversial provision that would have banned county clerks from promoting disinformation and misinformation. That raised a lot of First Amendment concerns. And so Republicans did have some bargaining power with this bill. You know, it's interesting that the thing they wanted off of the bill was that provision about clerks not being allowed to promote disinformation. Disinformation has become this like super polarized word. 
in mm-hmm. that on uh, the Democratic side, there's this idea of like, hey, there, there's what's actually happening and then there are conspiracy theories and we want to make sure that people are getting what's actually happening. And on the Republican side, that word has come to symbolize Democrats pushing their worldview and trying to outlaw ours. I also Mm -hmm. edit our congressional coverage, of course, and that fight is happening right now with this Department of Homeland Security Board for disinformation. Our members of Congress are in on it. And it's just so interesting. This was a very neutral word until 2020. And now it just sounds totally different if you are a Democrat or a Republican. I'd argue it's not just 2020. I mean, there was a ton of actual disinformation coming out of President Trump and Republicans throughout his presidency. But then this backlash is really like, about the question of, well, who gets to decide what is information and what is disinformation? For now, I'm going to move us down the road while we're all still awake and haven't collapsed yet. And I want to get back to what you brought up, Benta, which is the question of what power the GOP lawmakers had this session. Obviously, they are in the minority in the Senate. They are very much in the minority of the House. But as we saw in the final days of work, they had tools at their disposal and they definitely used them. And for those purposes, I'd like to move that we have the bill read at length. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. In order to give my colleagues who I see looking through a files enough time to get that bill out, I ask that the bill be read at length. I move that the bill be read at length. For the sake of my catching up for any comments, uh, that this bill be read at length. We are all over the order of these bills. I ask that uh, the bill be read at length. So what you're hearing there is Republicans asking for bills to be read at length, which means this annoying robot voice has to read every word of the bill out loud. And that can take hours in some cases, depending on how long the bill is. And there were dozens and dozens and dozens of bills left to pass. So when they started doing this on more than half, it felt like of the bills, it posed this threat where suddenly it was like, are they going to take this all the way through Wednesday? And how many bills are going to die if they keep this up? So this bill reading provision is in the state constitution. It does give Republicans a lot more leverage when the clock is ticking in these final few days because the session has to adjourn at a certain time and bills need a certain number of days to get through the legislative process. So Mm -hmm. it's the one point in session that I think Republicans have the most power in the minority, even though I think a lot of Democrats do want Republicans on their bills. They don't need Republicans on their bills. In those final few days, they do need Republicans in a different way. Republicans have little power to create new legislation without Democrats' permission, but they get more and more power at the end to change Democrats' legislation. You know, one thing I had wondered about was whether Democrats were going to try to take this power away. It is in the state constitution, so you have to like actually get voters to do that. Uh, and so partway through session, I noticed that there was a resolution introduced by one Democrat, no co-sponsors, to ask voters to do away with bill readings. It went nowhere. It sat there. I was like, what are these guys going to do with it? And then at the very end, it did get a hearing. It started moving. And Bento, you're like, yeah, that's actually one of the reasons that Republicans are so mad is they're up in arms because Democrats might try to take this power away. And so they used it even more at that crucial moment. And I thought that was just kind of a really interesting showdown, especially if you are Republicans and you're worried about being in the minority for a while, potentially. This is the best thing in your toolbox at times. That died on the calendar. But yes, Democrats and a lot of them I talked to wanted to refer that question to voters to change the Constitution, to ban these bill readings. And they said, look, it's a waste of time. We're not debating policy. And they see it as obstructionist. And Republicans said, oh, you want to get rid of our delay tactics? I'd hate to have to delay that. (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, it was an interesting moment on Monday. Uh, but, you know, as often happens at the end of session, it seemed like everything was going to go off the rails. It seemed like maybe all these bills were going to die. I said the words that I almost never say, which are special session. <laughs> yeah, uh, I heard that a couple times. Yeah, but they pulled it back from the brink, as they often do. I feel like we got taken in by the drama, but maybe it was necessary. You drama. know what? If bill readings don't scare people, special session scares lawmakers that much more. Well, they all have like plane tickets booked for the day after they adjourn. I got places to be. Okay, so that's one of the ways that Republicans had a role there at the end of session. Let's turn to the man who had a big role all the way through session, of course, as we always like to talk about, Governor Jared Polis. Let's hit a couple of those places where the mighty hand of Polis was definitely felt this session. Yeah, we did see that mighty hand in the mix, stirring things up many times during the session, and seemingly always on things that I specifically was covering. Yeah, you really did keep hitting them. Maybe because I'm interested in stuff that divides Democrats. You know, it was collective bargaining. It was rent stabilization, sometimes known as rent control for mobile homes. And it was this much smaller proposal, but still a very important one to create an office to investigate the cases of indigenous people who are missing or who have been murdered. In each one of those, Polis's staff got really involved and reshaped the final outcome, in some cases forcing lawmakers to really water down their original proposals. And one we have to, of course, mention is a bill that would have banned flavored tobacco that cleared the House. It had the votes to clear the legislature. But in the final few days of session in the Senate, they actually switched around some committee members and, and that bill failed in a Senate committee Governor Jared Polis was strongly opposed to this bill, and he said it should be handled at the local level. So basically, a veto threat got a bill killed before it could get to a veto. And one really interesting thing about that was Kyle Malika and the other sponsors worked pretty hard to get it out of the House. And when that happened, a senator told me, oh, that wasn't supposed to get out of the House. I love it when unexpected things happen at the legislature, because honestly, that is rarer than I think any of us would like to admit. Was there a theme in Polis's role in this session? Could you see a vision coming out of the ways that his hand was felt? I think that Polis likes to pick a few things that he really cares about and sticks to those. And if he can't fit it into that rubric, he's going to push back on it. I think that's right. And Democratic lawmakers say it can be hard to change his mind on things. But one thing that I will say is interesting on the, the big fentanyl bill we've talked about, Polis actually wanted to make any amount of possessing fentanyl a felony. But he said he was okay if Democrats didn't get there and he would still sign it. So that was one where he didn't weigh in, but he gave them more leeway. A rare moment of flexibility. One thing about trying to parse Polis's influence here is people do say he has a libertarian streak. And you see it in, in places like where he says, you know, he doesn't want the state to dictate what happens on vaporizers, flavored nicotine. But then, you know, it's not particularly libertarian to say, I want felonies for all these drug possession cases. So it's not always completely true to just say that he's got this libertarian streak. Sometimes he listens to which way the political wind is blowing, at least according to him. He's really engaged. And On I think, some issues. And I think that's a good thing for lawmakers when he agrees with what they're pushing. And obviously difficult for Democrats when he's not on board. 
it's kind of a Goldilocks problem because I remember under Hickenlooper, lawmakers would complain that he wasn't involved enough right. and that they kind of didn't know where the first floor was. Exactly. And now they've got Polis and the complaint is, God, he's always in the mix. And you can see when he supports something, it moves really, really fast. The property tax deferral measure, the, the one that's going to blunt the rise in property taxes, got through the legislature in like four or five days. Same with that Tabor refund bill that popped up right at the end where Democrats are pushing an existing tax rebate up by about six months, conveniently before the November election. That was a big polis priority. And boy, that zoomed once it got introduced. And yet the ones that he opposes or pushes back on, like the collective bargaining rights for local public employees bill, those can stay in... uh... What's that place between heaven Limbo, and hell? Purgatory. Purgatory. <laughs> yeah. Either of those two for months and months and months. And I think that one had like more than 500 amendments, right? Oh, God. Yes, I think so. I think I read that in a story somewhere that we wrote. And I don't want to hear from any theologists about whether or not limbo and purgatory are technically between heaven and hell. You know what I mean. We've actually managed to cover a lot of the bills that we devoted whole episodes to during this season, but I think it would be helpful if right now we just very quickly and cleanly told everybody where the things we covered ended up. So quick hits here, guys, and I'm going to work backwards through the season. Our last episode was on this big package of transformational behavioral health bills that lawmakers were pushing. Benta, what ended up with those? Those crossed the finish line, and it was a historic investment, nearly a half billion dollars into behavioral health, and it covered a whole host of things. So we're looking at more residential treatment beds for children, for adults, more money, about $90 million to fund gaps in the current system where people aren't getting help and resources for family and youth. And so advocates in this area say this was a critically important session because they got so much done and made a dent in this hole we have in our behavioral health system, even though it's not gonna get us to the funding level that you know they would like to have ideally. But this was an area too that a lot of the legislation was bipartisan. Um, rural lawmakers have concerns in their communities about high suicide rates. And I think the stress, anxiety, the disruption coming out of the pandemic is felt among people, families across Colorado. So that's just going to put a further strain on our health system. Okay, so behavioral health, those bills got through. Andy, we actually just talked about this one, but let's put a bow on it. Flavored tobacco ban. It's a no-go. It died. Benda, the election security bill, another one we've talked about. Yep, that's that's moving ahead. So continuing to just be very clear about bills that we've been talking about today, criminal justice reform and fentanyl. It's a mixed bag where I think that criminal justice reformers probably feel like they gained a little ground and lost some ground, where that fentanyl bill ended up including the felony possession charges that the reformers didn't want. It also, though, will force jails to provide treatment for withdrawal to administer methadone and substances like that. And then there was also a number of smaller reform bills for how the courts and police work, and some of those died and some of those went ahead. I did notice that the very last bill of the session was a criminal justice reform loss. It was a bill that would have prevented law enforcement from using deceptive tactics when they interrogate a juvenile. From lying to kids. Exactly. That's definitely how the backers would put it. And in the end, it got amended in a way that the backers said, not only do we not support it, we actually think it makes things worse. And the last vote of the session was to toss out that bill. 
Yeah, the sponsor said they so disliked the final product that they didn't even want to pass it. And the Denver Post reported that that bill had been gutted, essentially, because of a deal struck with Republicans to get rid of the delay tactics. See, everything is full circle. <laughs> All right, continuing through our list of, of uh, past episodes, abortion and the effort by Democrats to protect it in the state. Benta, where's that? Yep, that's been signed by the governor, and already Democrats are saying that they hope to do more next year as restrictions take place in other states. They want to protect providers of these services and make sure people in Colorado aren't caught up in laws other states are passing. Interesting. Andy, public sector organizing. You mentioned that Polis got very involved in this. The bill that finally passed was not the bill that we talked about at the beginning of our season, or at least didn't really look very similar to it. What happened? Well, it ended up a lot smaller than it started the original proposal was to cover more than 400,000 employees of schools and universities and cities and counties, and it ended up only covering county government workers, giving them the rights to unionize and collectively bargain. It ended up representing a tenth of what it was originally going to do, also carving out some of the key rights that other union members have. So they asked for the moon, and they got like one of those tiny little moons that orbits around Saturn or whatever. That was a left turn into astronomy I did not expect. Andy, the, the last one goes to you. That's affordable housing, uh, another place where lawmakers were hoping to use federal money to make transformational change. How'd that end up? Well, they is, are ready to spend a lot of federal money, and they also passed a bill to create a new middle-income housing authority. There is some debate about that because it's this left turn into a new approach, a new statewide housing effort. It didn't get much money, but we'll see the sponsors saying it could be making thousands of units within a matter of years. But housing really emerged as more and more of this statewide concern, which historically has not been. And we'll see where they take that next year. Of course, with more than 600 bills in the session, there was a lot of stuff going on. They also passed bills around air quality and greenhouse gas emissions, still trying to chip away at climate policy and make the state more climate friendly. But with 600 plus bills, there are often a lot of really interesting one-off ones that catch our attention. So before we wrap up today, I'm going to put you each on the spot. Is there one last bill that you think people should know about? Benta. Yes. So Colorado, under, under this bill that passed, would do away with anonymous sperm and egg donation. And so supporters say this bill would be the first of its kind in the nation. Backers say anonymity is pretty much already going away because people do so much DNA testing and those ancestry tests and they can uncover biological relations that they didn't know of. So this is trying to set some parameters around there, limits how many families a donor could create, sets an age limit for donors, and requires the donor's medical information to be passed along to the family. Okay. Andy, do you have a bill? Yeah, I have a bill that didn't make it. It was a bill that would have enhanced investigations into the causes of wildfires. This is something that our investigative team at CPR did great reporting on and it helped to lead to this bill. But that plan died in the last few days. It would have dedicated a few million dollars, I believe, to these investigations. And it shows that even on a big priority like fighting wildfires, and even one that's pushed by influential Democrats like Senator Kerry Donovan, they can still run out of steam when you get to the end of session and you have something that costs a significant amount of money. Sometimes you just get cut because at the end of session, time and free money in the budget are both running short. Huh. 
And I'm going to take the editor's prerogative and mention two bills that I thought were interesting. Wow. Uh, two, okay. Uh, wow, big MC Lee. I know. I'm just I'm bigfooting you here. No, they're both right, come on. those kinds of environmental bills that are interesting because you can actually think about how they might apply to your life. One is putting more money into getting people to replace lawns. I have a front yard full of weeds that masquerade as wildflowers, so I'm kind of fascinated with the push to to get rid of turf and move to more water-friendly landscaping. There's some more state money for that. Maybe that's the money that was going to go to wildfire investigations. Now it's gone to to lawn replacement. And I've truly become a suburban dad because I'm mad that I already myself ripped out half my lawn, and now I'm not going to get paid for it. See, you just just needed to delay a little longer. Uh, The other one is a bill to really push recycling efforts much more statewide. Currently, only a percentage of people in Colorado have access to to recycling, and they want to pay for it. And I think this is really interesting by charging a fee on the companies that sell packaged goods. Basically, if your product is creating the waste, we want to charge you a fee to help take care of that waste. Apparently, we're the third state to have done that. And I think this is one where, like, the implementation is going to be really interesting to see how that Mm -hmm. actually rolls out. Definitely. Because it's going to be a few years and they didn't actually set the fee schedule and it's some like new unit of government that gets to set it. So we're not going to know the actual impact for some time. Well, when we do, we will be here to tell you about it. That's it for this episode. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. I'm Andrew Kenny. And I'm Benta Brooklyn. Purplish is edited by me, Megan Verlee who is occasionally allowed on the microphone, and produced in the studio by Shane Rumsey. That's it for our season of legislative coverage. But there is an election coming up soon, so keep an eye on your feeds because we'll be back to talk to you about that. This is Purplish from CPR News. All right. Guys, we did it. Boom shakalaka vaka vaka shaka boom shakalaka shakalaka